Uh, this morning, I want to thank Pastor John and Shandra so much for the opportunity just to be here. Uh, I love getting to serve with Pastor John. As he said, uh, I get to hang out here with him all week, and he gives me something to do, and I try to make it happen, and, uh, and I just love being able to do that. So thank you so much, Pastor John, for the opportunity. Uh, Hannah and I are so excited to be here. Uh, I grew up in Boise, and Hannah grew up in CUNA, so like we're just, we love being in the area, and it's so cool that we've been able to serve in, in both areas, and, and we're really excited to be here this morning. So uh, with that said, I encourage you, be patient with me as I try to learn everybody's names. Uh, I am called to work with people, but God did not give me the gift of memorizing people's names real quick. So if I have to come up to you a few times and say, I am not going to lie, I forgot your name, uh, just please tell me your name. Don't give me a fake one because that will really throw me off. I've tried the tricks where um, I'll like forget a kid's name uh, and then I'll be like, hey, how do you spell your name? And they're like, well, the normal way. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. And, and then they'll be like, it's B-O-B. I'm like, oh, it's Bob. Okay, I should have remembered that. So be patient with me. I'm trying really hard. Uh, and I'm, I'm enjoying getting to know everyone here. Uh, and it's been so much fun. So this morning, before we get started, I, I just want to start with a question. Anyone here ever been in a situation where you went into the situation uh, and maybe coming through the situation, you look back and you realize you might have been a little bit overconfident? Now, hopefully, bowling doesn't go this way with me here in a couple of weeks. Uh, but I remember when I was in high school, I actually had a moment like this where uh, I went into the situation and I felt pretty good about it. And then coming out of the situation, I realized I should not have been that confident. And what it was is uh, I grew up going to, uh, I went to Capitol High School, uh, go Eagles, um, who? Uh, Bora, Timberline, you guys, okay, yeah. Anyways, it's not that big a deal. But uh, they did this thing every October that they called the October Mile, where the cross-country team would uh, in invite people in the school to come and run a mile. And the cross-country team, they would do this towards the end of their season. That way they were all in shape and they could dominate everyone else. And uh, I ran cross-country in junior high and, and I had some friends that were on the cross-country team. So I think it was my sophomore year uh, or maybe my junior year, I don't remember. Um, one of my friends was like, hey, you should come do this. And I was like, a mile? That sounds easy. I can do this. I'm an athletic guy. Uh, I play sports. I, I'm all about this. So I showed up, and uh, as I said, this is the cross-country team at the end of their season, so they're like in peak form. And, and I show up after school, and uh, I probably had gym shorts on. I don't think I was wearing jeans. I was at least that much prepared. And we get there, and we like, I start stretching a little bit. I'm like, it's probably a good idea to stretch something. And, uh, and then the cross-country team's like, hey, we're going to go on a little warm-up run. And I was like, oh, well, if all the runners are going to go on a warm-up run, I should probably go too. Uh, and so they, they take off. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know we're going on a warm-up sprint. Uh, so they go running, and they head on down. I think it was Cole that they headed down, or uh, I don't know. The warm-up run ended up being like three times longer than the mile itself. And I remember uh, I was following along, and, and many of them were way ahead of me. There were a couple stragglers that I was like, all right, I, these are my people. I can keep up with them. And I see the people up ahead of me. We're just going down the street, and I figured we'd like go down and turn around and come back. They hang a left into a neighborhood that I've never been in before. And I'm like, I don't know where we're going, so I, I have to make sure I don't get left behind. Otherwise, I won't be able to find my way back. So I push really hard. We finally get back to the school, what feels like after a marathon. Uh, and we're like, all right, we're ready to race now. And I was like, that wasn't the race. I have to do this still. So we line up. And I remember uh, this thought in my mind, like, I think, 
I might have been a little too confident. And they, they say, ready, set, go. And um, as I said, I ran cross country in junior high, and, and I played a ton of sports. I think I played like eight or nine sports in high school. I loved being uh, like athletic and stuff. I hadn't done anything in like four months at this point. So I remember, I think it was the second lap, like the second turn, uh, going around that bend, I was doing everything I could not to barf in front of all my friends. And uh, I did, I finished the October mile. I don't remember what my time was. It wasn't worth remembering because it was not good. I could probably walk a mile faster than I did that day. Uh, But the thing is, is I came into that situation overly confident. I actually remember telling my friends and thinking, oh, I'll come represent the lacrosse team because I played lacrosse. It's probably a good thing I didn't officially represent them because they would not have been proud of me. Uh, But I came in and I was way too confident in my own ability. And it was this humbling experience where I thought, man, I'm going to be able to go and, and do this thing with these people that have been running and preparing themselves for all this time. And I just rolled up and it was an embarrassment. And so today what I want to actually do is take a look at a story where Jesus tells us, and he actually speaks to people that are dealing with this idea of being too confident or overconfident in their own ability. Uh, we're in this series where we're looking at the parables of Jesus, and a parable is a story that Jesus would tell to uh, demonstrate some kind of spiritual truth. And so today our story is going to be found in uh, Luke chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, I think we'll have it up on the screen as well. Luke chapter 18, we're going to start in uh, verse 9. And this is what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read the whole thing and then we'll go back and we're going to break down just a few details uh, coming back through. So Luke 18, starting in verse 9, says to some who are confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. And I pray this morning as we take a look at this, that you would reveal your truth to us. God, that you would speak to us. And Lord, that you would change our hearts to be more like you each and every single day. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Awesome. So in order to understand this parable and, and, and really um, gain a new appreciation for it, I think we need to do a few things and gain some new context here. And, and so I think one of the most important questions when we're reading scripture that we need to ask is who is the audience intended for? Who is this piece of scripture meant for? And it, we're super fortunate. It actually spells it out right here. It doesn't get any more simple. This is verse nine. It says, to some who are confident in their own righteousness and looked down on others. We don't always get this super obvious piece of context, but right here, we're super fortunate. So it's to people, Jesus is speaking to people that are too confident in their own ability, that they're confident in their righteousness. And on top of that, not only are they confident in themselves, they look down on other people because of that. Now, I would imagine that um, many of the people that Jesus is speaking to probably wouldn't have openly come out and said, yeah, I might be a little too confident in my own righteousness. 
They probably wouldn't have said that out loud, but there'd probably be things that would, uh, you would look at their actions or their thoughts, the things that they did that would point to that in their lives. And I would imagine that some of these people uh, would probably come up with some pretty elaborate excuses as to why they might struggle with certain things in their lives. Uh, But if anyone else struggles with that thing, they'd probably be willing to throw the first stone. I had this pastor that used to say all the time uh, that my sin always looks worse on other people. And I think that's really true that if, if I'm dealing with something, I can come up with some kind of justification why it might be okay or it's not that big a deal. But if I see someone else doing the same thing, I'm ready to like tear them down. For example, when you're driving in traffic, Anyone here ever have someone come like flying by you and cut you off and your first thought is, man, if there was just an officer right here that could pull that person over. Like that is, that would make me feel so good. And I actually remember a few weeks ago, I was driving home from work and I had a guy cut me off and there was an officer right there. And I was like, I'm going to get to see this happen. And the guy let him go. And I was, how could you let him go? I was so upset. And I was, that guy deserves to be pulled over. He is reckless. Yet there might be a time where I'm running late or uh, I'm just distracted and I do something dumb and I cut someone off and I'm like, well, my bad. I didn't mean to or whatever. And, and I think that's what we, we kind of naturally do where we look at other people and we say, that's pretty bad what you're doing. But what I'm doing, it's not that big a deal. I would imagine that there were people in this crowd that had thoughts like that. I would imagine that if you ask these people in this crowd what they thought about the grace of God, they would say, yeah, God's grace is sufficient to forgive me my sins. But if you asked them about the person that was outside struggling with things, they would question whether or not God could actually help them. I would imagine that they had thoughts like, I can't associate with that person because that would reflect negatively on me. I don't get why people can't just help themselves out of bad situations. And if I had to guess, many of us in this room have had similar thoughts or actions before in our lives because I know I have had those thoughts and actions. And I think that's why this is such an important parable for us to take a look at and understand. See, the audience that Jesus is speaking to is people that are overconfident in their own ability and look down on others. And I'd be willing to bet that I am a part of that audience and that you might be as well this morning. So with that in mind, Jesus then introduces these two really interesting characters. And I love how Jesus gives us this picture of these two characters. The first character that we get is the Pharisee. We have the Pharisee and the tax collector. The first one is the Pharisee. And if you read the New Testament, we hear a lot about the Pharisees and, and they're kind of a big deal in the culture. The Pharisees at this time are one of the strongest uh, Jewish religious groups. They held a lot of political power amongst the Jews and their belief system was built upon the Old Testament law. Their understanding of the Old Testament law was this really strict, uh, rigid idea of what it means to follow God's law. And in fact, many of them would uh, have this idea that in order to have salvation, I have to go about living every single little aspect of the law. Pharisees were actually often the people that Jesus uh, most often clashed with. A lot of people think of Jesus uh, as being this really nice uh, butterflies and puppies kind of guy that Jesus just loved everyone. But there are stories where Jesus, he gets a whip and he starts chasing people around with the whip. Uh, He calls people uh, like dogs and he calls people these things because they are just not living how God has called them to live. And it's not sinners that Jesus does that to. It's to these people like the Pharisees. And the reason why Jesus often would get upset with the Pharisees is because they claimed one gospel, yet they lived a different one. 
They often would present themselves as these righteous guys that lived this amazing lifestyle that um, if everyone could just live like me, life would be better, is probably what they would think. And they would often put these harsh burdens on other people uh, that they themselves wouldn't live up to or that people couldn't realistically live up to. For example, uh, their idea of the Sabbath, that God gave us a day to rest, which is absolutely a biblical principle. But they would take it so much so that instead of being a day of rest, it would be a day of a burden. And so there's this Pharisee and, and much of the life of a Pharisee is all about power and honor. They would dress a certain way. And when people saw a Pharisee coming, they would know instantly who they were. And so we have this one guy that socially is looked up to, that he's respected, and that people would possibly fear and hold something within their hearts where they see that person must be better than I am because I can't ever measure up to them. Then we see the tax collector. This guy is pretty much the polar opposite. And in fact, um, here in the NIV, it just calls him a tax collector. I was reading this morning out of the New Living Translation, and it calls him a despised tax collector. Tax collectors are really interesting people in the New Testament. Pretty much any time you read about a tax collector, it's seen in a negative context. There's not many times in the Bible where it talks about tax collectors as being good guys. They're almost always these people uh, that are thrown into a group of sinners. One of my favorite passages talks about how Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and quote-unquote reputable sinners. People that were good at sinning are grouped together with tax collectors. Many times we see that these tax collectors, the reason why that they were hated or or seen as someone that was not liked is because um, the Romans had come in and they'd taken over the land. And in order for Rome and its empire to thrive, they had to charge taxes. And so they would come and they would hire people uh, that are locals to go out and charge these taxes. And so if you were a Jew and you were looking to get rich, you could become a tax collector because it was an easy way to get wealth. But by doing that, what you're saying is I'm going to betray my brothers and sisters and I'm going to steal from them so that I could prosper myself. And so people, when they would see tax collectors, they weren't, it wasn't just like uh, the IRS agent that's like, hey, you made money this year, you got to pay something. They would come up to you and they would have an armed Roman guard and they would say, hey, you owe this much money to Caesar. And if you don't pay it, you're going to jail. And what they would often do instead of, they would give in a quota of how much money they would have to make. And they say, all right, I'm supposed to charge my neighbor this much money. But if I charge an extra 20% on top of that, I can pocket that 20%. And so these tax collectors, tax collectors were hated because they would steal from people and they were seen uh, as rejecting their own people. So Jesus gives us these two characters that are basically polar opposites. We have the Pharisee that's supposed to be seen as this righteous guy that's looked up to. Uh, and we have the tax collector that basically... Um, One of the best ways I could think about describing a tax collector is like a stinky, old, sweaty gym sock that's been left in a gym bag a little bit too long. Like, there's nothing good about tax collectors. And so we get these two characters that are literally on the opposite ends of the social spectrum. And then we get to see the actions of these two men are very different as well. Not only is their lifestyle and the way that people perceived them different, but the way they actually go about living is different as well. And so first we see the Pharisee. This is Luke 18, verses 11 and 12. It says, The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. 
See, on the, on the surface, the Pharisee checked all the boxes. We would look at the Pharisee and go, hey, that's a pretty good guy, right? He serves at the church. He probably even goes as far as like helping out in kids ministry or something, because we know that's like, you got to be a little bit crazy to do that. But he served at church. He would give money to the church. Uh, he would spend all his time there at church. He would do all of the churchy things. Not only would he fast every once in a while, he would fast twice a week. I, I really like food. I don't like fasting twice a week. I don't think I could pull that off. And so we look at this guy, and he would have been seen as, man, that's someone that I should try to, I should try to live like, because that guy is a righteous person. That guy seems to have everything figured out. But we see in his prayer that there's some kind of flaw within him. And his major character flaw is this, is it's all about himself. If we go back and look at his prayer, it's pretty interesting. First, we see how he postures himself in the temple. It says that he gets up. And I would imagine that uh, he didn't just go and get up in the back of the room, but instead he came up front so that everybody could check him out, right? He might've gotten a new haircut or his beard's looking good that day or something. And he's like, hey, you guys got to check me out. And so he postures himself. And I would imagine when he prays, he doesn't give this little prayer where he's like, God, I thank you so much. He was loud and he was letting people know that he was there. And then take a look at his prayer. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, right? He says, I fast twice a week and I give all that I get. He says the word I a whole lot in that prayer. His prayer is all about himself and not about what God is doing in his life. And in fact, I'm not even sure that he's actually praying to God. You look at this prayer and it seems like the thing he's more concerned about is himself and what other people would think about himself. So we have this tax or this Pharisee that on the outside seems like he has everything together, but there's something within him that's in the wrong place. And then the second character, we look at the tax collector's prayer. This is verse 13. It says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me a sinner. Instead of getting up in front of everyone, the tax collector, he slips into the back of the temple. And I think that his whole mindset was, is, man, I know I'm supposed to come to the temple, but I don't want to go there because I think people are going to notice that I'm there. My neighbor that I, I stole from last week is going to be there. And people are going to look at me and they're going to judge me. And, uh, and I know that I don't deserve to be here. And so it says that he gets up to pray and instead of coming up in front of everyone, he slips into the back and then he gives this honest, amazing, powerful prayer, right? He realizes that he's a sinner in need of a savior. And this guy has accomplished the first step in becoming a Christian and recognizing that I am not good enough in myself, but that I need a God that forgives to forgive me. This tax collector would not have lived a life that we would consider righteous or good. This guy was a straight up sinner and he was really good at sinning. But there was something about his heart and about his, his, uh, his approach to his prayer that God looks at and says, hey, that's a righteous person because his heart is postured in such a way that God can do something with it. And so the Pharisee and the tax collector are polar opposites in every aspect of social status, action, and thought. Literally everything about them is an opposite. But then Jesus gives us the punchline here in verse 14. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, he's talking about the tax collector. I tell you that the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
I believe that God is more interested in someone with a repentant heart than he is with someone that may be able to uphold even the smallest parts of the law. That God really cares about the heart more so than anything else. And I think this is the important thing that we need to draw from this today is that our righteousness doesn't come through our own ability, but it only comes through what Christ Jesus has done for us on the cross. We cannot earn our own righteousness, but it comes through what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Amen, that is good news. Because if I have to earn it on my own, I'm gonna fall short. But if I have a savior who lived a perfect life, then I'm gonna be able to measure up. So my question this morning is, why does that matter today? And I wanna pull out three things from this today. The first is this, is it can be really easy to compare our righteousness to other people and feel like we might, doing a pretty, might be doing a pretty good job. But the problem is we're using the wrong measuring stick. Uh, I remember I was at a conference years ago and the pastor explained it this way, that if we called everyone up here and we had a competition to see who could jump the highest, uh, some of you might feel like, hey, I would do pretty good. I feel like I could place pretty high in that competition. And some of you would be like, jump, I can't even like stand up on my own very well, right? And and even if we lined everyone up and said, all right, we're gonna get those who think they can jump the highest over here and those who are like, I'm not even going to try to stay over here. And then we'll see who the best jumper is. And we could, we could rank everyone based on how well they could jump. And, and, and whoever could jump the highest maybe gets a prize. But the thing is that you may, you know, you may be able to touch the ceiling or something like that. But really in order to be considered the best jumper and, and be able to do it the right way, you'd have to be able to jump and touch the moon. Like that's what we're actually striving for when it comes to righteousness. Yeah, some people may be able to be a little bit more righteous than other people. But the, the measuring stick, the standard that we have to compare ourselves to is perfection and the perfection of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the thing is, is none of us are ever gonna be able to jump that high. None of us are gonna be able to reach a point in our lives where we go, you know what, I figured it out. I believe that it's important we understand this, that there will never be a point in our lives where we no longer need God's mercy and grace. But instead, we need more and more of his mercy and grace in our lives each and every single day. Because it's not about my ability. It doesn't matter if, if I may be more righteous or may be able to do a few things better than some other people. Because in comparison to what Jesus has done, it doesn't measure up. So that's the first thing I think we need to understand. Is that our righteousness, it's not about comparing ourselves to other people. That's about us and Jesus. And that's the only thing that matters. And so that leads to the second thing is that the next time that we're tempted to look down on someone else, I think we should use it as an opportunity to check our hearts and become more like Jesus. See, Jesus more than anyone had every right to look down on other people. Jesus was perfect. He was the one that if we measured everyone up, right, we lined everyone up and say, hey, how high can you jump? He would win every single time. And Jesus could have looked down the line and said, why can't you guys jump higher? Why can't you be better at this? Why can't you do a better job? But the really cool thing was, is Jesus, instead of looking down the line saying, why can't you guys be better? He would go and say, hey, how can I help lift you up to an even higher height? Jesus made a practice of going to people and meeting people in their brokenness, that he met people in their sin, he met them in their filth. And he was willing to meet people where they were at. He didn't wait for people to get out of the brokenness. He didn't wait for people to get cleaned up before he would go to them. Instead, he met them where they were at. And so I want to challenge us this morning is the next time we find those thoughts where we're thinking, you know what, I don't know why that person can't just help themselves. Or I don't know if I can associate with that person because it might look bad on me. 
or anything like that. I want to challenge us the next time we have those thoughts, maybe look as an opportunity to flip the script and say, you know what, how can I be like Jesus to that person? And I think one of the first things that we can do is we can simply lift that person up in prayer. Um, on my way to work here every day, I drive by a house and uh, they've got a pride flag out front. And um, we believe what the Bible says that God calls people to repentance and that that is a sinful lifestyle. And, and the easy thing for me to do when I drive by that house is to go, man, that person, they don't get it. Like they are lost and, and there's no hope for them. That's the easy thought that goes through my mind. But if I pause for a moment and say, you know what, instead of looking at that person and saying, you know what, they don't deserve the grace of Jesus, I can instead pray, you know what, I think that's a person that just simply hasn't heard the truth yet. That that person needs to hear about the grace of Jesus Christ and what that really actually means. And so every time I drive by that house, I've made it a practice now. I drive by and I just say a simple prayer. Like, God, I pray today that you would reach that person, that you would speak to them, that you would reveal your grace to them and that you would let them know that they are loved by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and that you have a better life in store for them. And so I wanna challenge you the next time you see a moment like that and you're like, man, I don't know about that person. Pause right there and say, no, instead I'm gonna pray that God would intervene in their life. I'm gonna pray that God would meet them where they're at and that God would transform their lives into a beautiful and new creation. And then maybe we can take it one step further is the next time we see someone that's struggling and, and we're tempted to look down upon them instead of simply just praying for them, take it a step further and get involved with their lives. James talks about this in James chapter two, verse 14 and 16. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? See, James says, look, it's great if you see someone that's in need and you pray for them, we should absolutely be doing that. But if you have a way to actually help that person, then you should do something about it. Sometimes we get too spiritual about things where we may see someone struggling and, and we just say, God, I pray that you would help that person. God bless that person today. And God is saying, I would love to be able to help that person, but I've given you the ability to help them. Like you are the help. And so I think that maybe we can take those moments and when we're feeling like we need to judge someone or look down on someone or, or someone struggling, and we can ask ourselves, is there something I can do to help that person, right? Not everyone is gonna want help. And sometimes people, they need to be able to be helped and they want to have to be helped. But we can, we can go and we can be Jesus to people, not only in prayer, but also in practical needs as well, which is why we're doing things like raising money for the AG World Missions. We wanna be a part of what Jesus is doing here on earth. And so that's the second thing I wanna challenge us that when we are looking down on other people, flip the script and say, you know what? This is an opportunity for me to be like Jesus. And then the final thing is, I think that we can pull from this story is that God's grace is sufficient for even the worst of sinners. And that is a beautiful thing. That the grace of Jesus Christ is enough to cover each and every single sin. And there has never been a person that has gone too far that can't be reached by the grace of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus himself said it wasn't the person that looked righteous that went away justified, but it was the sinner there was no doubt about that this guy was a sinner, is the one that recognized the Savior and that he is the one that went away justified before God. And so maybe you're here this morning and you might be hesitant to accept that today that God's grace could be enough for you or that God's grace could be enough to help someone else. 
And if you've ever had thoughts of, you know what, I don't know if God will really forgive me of this thing. Or I don't know if Jesus really wants to use me because I don't measure up. If you've ever had thoughts like that, you're actually in some really good company. First Timothy says this, this is, this is Paul, he writes this. First Timothy chapter one, verses 15 and 16 says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as, as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. See, the guy that writes this has a really interesting story. As I said, his name is Paul, also referred to as Saul in the New Testament. When we first hear about Saul, uh, the first example we get of him is he's hanging out with these guys that are, um, they're killing a Christian, the first martyr in the Bible. And he's there and it says that they drag this guy out and they're going to stone him and, and they need to be able to throw rocks. And so they're like, hey, we got to take our coats off and put them somewhere. And Saul's like, I'll hold your coats so that you guys can take care of business. And so he stands there, he's taking care of these guys' coats so they can throw rocks. And it says that in that moment, he approved of what was going on. And then there was something that sparked within Saul where he's like, this is what I want to be all about. Saul was a Pharisee and he lived this quote unquote righteous lifestyle. And he went and he pursued Christians. He became a professional bounty hunter where he would go and hunt down Christians and he would arrest them so that they would spend time in prison or possibly be murdered. And there's this crazy thing. We look at this guy who his life is now spent murdering people and chasing people down. And God intervenes in his life and says, Saul, I've got something better for you. And God changes his life. And so that after this point where he meets God, he now becomes a Christian and not just a Christian. He goes about and he tells everyone that he meets about Jesus. Literally every single moment from that point on was all about telling people about Jesus. And Paul, he eventually starts going by the name Paul. He's responsible for a little over half of the New Testament books in the Bible. He wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else did. And I would argue that Paul is probably responsible for more people knowing about Jesus today than anybody else. I mean, outside of Jesus, he's kind of a big deal, right? But Paul, more than anybody else, this guy that would describe himself as, I am the worst of sinners, was changed by God so much so that he would become one of the biggest influencers in the world to ever share the message of Jesus Christ. Man, if God is willing to reach into someone's life that has made a practice of murdering people, that that's his job, and he can change them so much so. I believe that God can reach into your life, that God can reach into your friend's life, that God can reach into your family member's life that has walked away from the faith, that there is hope because Jesus can meet people in their sin and brokenness. See, the really beautiful thing is that he doesn't just meet us in our brokenness, but he brings us out of that and transforms us into a new creation. We preach a lot that uh, Jesus's grace is sufficient to meet people where they're at, that he'll forgive every sin. And that's absolutely true. And the really cool thing is, is he doesn't just forgive us of our sin. He doesn't just wash us clean and then put us back in the situation that got us messed up in the first place. He makes us clean and he positions us into a new life, into a new creation, so that we no longer have to identify as I am that worst sinner that we can now become righteous and saved because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so whether you're here this morning and you need to believe that for the first time ever, or maybe you have a friend or a family member that is not living for Jesus right now, 
you need to understand that there is the possibility of them knowing Jesus Christ because Jesus's grace is enough that his grace is sufficient. And that if we continue to lift people up in prayer, that Jesus will meet them, that he won't leave them in their brokenness. And so this is what we're going to do is I'm going to wrap things up this morning. And um, I'm a youth pastor, so I kind of have to go about doing the closing thing in a certain way. Otherwise, teenagers, they start thinking about their boyfriend or girlfriend or Instagram and stuff. So this is what I'm going to ask, that we would all just bow our heads and close our eyes just so we can get focused for a moment here. Uh, And I want to look for just a couple of responses this morning. Real quick, I want to highlight these three things one more time. So I think that it can be easy to look down on other people when we have the wrong measuring stick, that Jesus Christ is the one that we find righteousness through. And that the next time that we're tempted to look down on someone, it can be an opportunity to be like Jesus. And then finally, that God's grace is sufficient for even the worst of sinners. Now you may be here this morning and um, you might be saying, man, I am that worst of sinners. Paul's got nothing on me. I will tell you this, that Jesus's grace is sufficient to meet you where you're at. And the Bible says that if we confess our sins and believe what Jesus has done for us, that he'll forgive us, he'll give us new life, that he'll draw us out of that situation that we're in, that we don't have to get ourselves cleaned up before we go to him, but we simply trust in what his grace has done for us. And so this is what I'm gonna ask, every head bowed, every eye closed. I just wanna ask, is there anyone here this morning that would say, you know what, I need to ask Jesus to forgive me of some stuff. I would like to ask him into my life uh, and believe that he can meet me where I'm at. If that's you, would you slip your hand up real quick? Awesome, thank you, thank you. And this is what we're gonna do as a church. We're just gonna pray together. And uh, this isn't a magic prayer, but we're simply expressing what's going on in our hearts. And we're gonna believe that Jesus's grace is enough to forgive us of our sin, that he can turn us into righteous people because of what he's done. So I'd ask that everybody repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I thank you for today. I admit I'm not a perfect person but I believe what your word says, that you lived a perfect life, that you died in my place and you came back to life so I could be forgiven. I ask you forgive me and make me new. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome, you guys can look back up here. And this is what I wanna do is my final challenge for us this morning is um, to be really purposeful about living like Jesus did. That next time that we have that thought in our heart where we're like, you know what, I don't know if I can associate with that person or we feel like we need to look down on someone else, take that moment and say, no, this is an opportunity for me to be like Jesus. Uh, And I just wanna close this out in prayer, believing that Jesus is gonna do that in our lives, that he'll alert us to that and that we can become more like him each and every single day. So let's pray. God, we thank you so much for today. I thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, Lord, I thank you that when I screw up and I don't measure up, Lord, that you meet me there, that you call me to a higher purpose. God, that your grace is enough to forgive me. And Lord, I pray that you remind me of that, that your grace is enough for each and every single person, that there has never been a person that has walked this earth that was beyond your grace. And so Lord, I pray that I would remember that this week and that as a congregation, we remember that, that the next time we're tempted to look down on someone else, that instead we would lift them up in prayer and that we would be like you, that we would love them and care for them and bring them up into your love. God, we pray for friends and family members that don't know you. God, we ask that you would intervene in a mighty and powerful way. And God, that we would know that your grace is enough for them and we would never stop believing that. God, we love you and we thank you for today. And we ask that you be lifted high. We pray this all in Jesus' name. 
And everyone said, amen. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for being here today.